Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at insperity.com. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Corient has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Well, I started to make some things, and I would put them in the store to see how they would do, and they would do really well. And so the majority of the stock slowly became my designs. And I had a full page in Vogue and I had a good size page in Bazaar. And that was beyond belief because I thought somebody is gonna find me out. I don't know what I'm doing. And I have a full page in in Vogue and Bazaar. This is nuts. Like, I don't have a clue. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Norma Kamali built a 50-year career around hot pants, sleeping bag coats, and a Farrah Fawcett swimsuit, and helped usher in the era of American fashion design. Starting a brand and then scaling it fast? 
is hard. The glasses company Warby Parker was founded in 2010, and within five years, it was valued at over a billion dollars. The suitcase maker Away was launched in 2015, and by 2019, investors valued it at $1.4 billion. Both incredible achievements and both incredibly rare achievements. But what's just as hard, maybe even harder, is to build a brand that endures, that lasts a long time. Think Dell Computers and Southwest Airlines, or even Starbucks and Burton Snowboards, all stories we've told on the show. And this raises a question. What does it take to last? To build something that can withstand changes in culture or in technology or in lifestyle? Well, in many ways, our story today answers that question. Because fashion designer Norma Kamali figured it out. She's been able to build a brand that your mom might have worn and that you'd want to wear too. She's probably best known for creating the sleeping bag coat, but also helping to popularize hot pants, shoulder pads for women, the all-in-one dress, and for designing the iconic red bathing suit made famous by supermodel Farrah Fawcett, a piece that is actually in the permanent collection at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. But this isn't just a story about someone with incredible staying power as a fashion designer. This is, you could argue, the story of modern American fashion design. Because back before, say, the 1960s, design, for the most part, happened in Europe. To wear something fancy usually meant wearing Hermes or Chanel or Christian Dior, not Donna Karan or Ralph Lauren or Calvin Klein. And Norma Kamali was in the vanguard of young designers who changed all of that. She grew up in the 1950s in Manhattan in an immigrant neighborhood called Yorkville. Her mother was Lebanese and her father was Basque. When Norma was little, her parents split up. And when she was 13, both her father and her stepfather died. So Norma was mainly raised by her mom, who, according to Norma, was an incredibly creative person. My mother always had an easel with oil paints where she was in the middle of an oil painting while she was cooking some incredible dish that she just created. (laughs) She made costumes for the plays that we had in the neighborhood for all the kids, but beautiful research costumes. And so I thought that that's what everybody does and so I was drawing very early I was doing creative things from for as long as I can remember and it was great satisfaction for me and did you have easels and, and and canvases all over your house and were you constantly painting Actually, no, because the house was about two feet by three feet, so <laughs> there there was just enough space, let's say, really tiny space. So in this neighborhood, we had a community house that we would go to after school, and that's where I did a lot of painting. And then I enjoyed sitting by the river and sketching it was such a happy place to just see a beautiful view and being able to sketch it. Hmm. But but when it came time to go to college, um, you didn't go to art school. Instead, you wound up uh, 
uh, getting a scholarship to FIT, which is the, the Fashion Institute of Technology, right? Yeah, I decided on FIT because my mother was very clear <laughs> that <laughs> she didn't think painting was actually going to help me pay the rent because she wanted me to know that she was not going to help me pay the rent. <laughs> so I I went to FIT to see where that would take me. But you have to know that I hated fashion because <laughs> it was Mad Men time, right? That yeah, yeah. girdles, garter belts, yeah. cone bras, the whole thing, and everything was matchy. This was the early, this was like the early 60s. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I did not like that at all. I found it very restricting. And I was obsessed with vintage films from the 30s and 40s. So I was hmm. already going into these sort of secondhand stores. They weren't called vintage stores at the time. Right. And I would find these clothes and wear them. And I was just off the grid, like nobody got me. And I didn't study fashion. I didn't study pattern making. Huh. I studied fashion illustration with, and, uh, and this was, at the time, there were actual jobs that you could get in fashion illustration. Now, I mean, people probably don't even know what that means as far as yeah. um, an advertising style. So, so you studied fashion illustration, which is right. basically drawing outfits on on model on, models. on yeah and i was able to really study anatomy in a big way i had a, i used to take a lot of courses on anatomy outside of fit and from that i really understanding the body the movement of the body the muscle over the bone over, mm. and the skin over so it it all comes together yeah and were you an ambitious student did you think i'm going to i'm going to do this and then I'm going to become a fashion designer. I'm going to make a name for myself. No. I first no. of all, let's put this in perspective of the early 60s. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't until the 70s that being a designer in a design house was an American concept, right? Hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. The jobs that you would get in the 60s would be manufacturers who knocked off European fashion. Yeah. Even the department stores at the time would copy the collections and put them under their store brand. So if you look at vintage clothes, you'll see in a lot of the labels the the store that carried them, not necessarily the manufacturer or the designer because that was the way it was done. So the store was really the brand. And I want to add to that, women in the workplace in the 60s, think Mad Men again. Yeah. Most of the women were secretaries, assistants, had those kinds of jobs. Hmm. So I just thought if I can get a fashion illustration job at a company or at a newspaper or a magazine, that would be fine. I would be happy with that. And so my first job interview was in the garment center at a manufacturer. Unfortunately, it was a, a, a 
difficult experience. It was an objectifying experience. When you went in as an for an interview? Yeah. So I, I was very happy with my portfolio. I felt very good about it. I. This is your portfolio of of your illustrations. Yes. Yes. So I yeah. was so excited to be graduating and you know hopefully get this job. And I walk in, and he's got his feet up on his desk. He's eating <laughs> a tuna sandwich, and he tells me to put my portfolio down. And I was wearing a little black dress below my knee, low pumps. My hair was back in a bun. I was very mm. low-key. Yeah. And he said to me, come here and turn around for me. And... <laughs> I just, there was this white noise, and I thought, what? what? What does that mean? What he And he's the power in the room, and I hear my mother's voice saying, you better get this job. You better get a job. And wow. so I turned around, and I just was so embarrassed and humiliated, and I ran out of the office I grabbed my portfolio, and I remember my portfolio tearing up my stockings and my and I'm clip clopping on my pumps, and I'm feeling and crying and so devastated. So when I got home, my mother said, "Well, did you get the job?" And I said, "No, I didn't get it." Hmm. And I got a New York Times, which is where they had a big section for jobs that were available and I saw a job at an airline and at the time Pan Am TWA all of these airlines were the apple of the time right those, yeah. those were the yeah. those were the jobs That's where you, you wanted, wanted. To work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so I of course didn't want to be a stewardess and I had zero office skills but I went for the job because I thought I want to travel that's what I want to do. I want to see the world. I, I don't want to do this. And so I went for the job, and uh, shockingly, I got it. And the next thing I know, I'm working at a Univac computer in the 60s. Wow. Besides education, airlines were the first ones to actually commercially use um, computers. computers. And just to, just to, and and so what was your, you were hired by... By Northwest. North, Northwest Orient Airlines in the and, office at Penn Plaza, yeah. And as a as as what? What was your official job? So I was uh, a reservations specialist and right. basically a clerk. And I worked in this big room with desks all in a row facing a big glassed-in walled office. And... Every single call was monitored, and people were in there with headphones listening to how we handle our calls. So people call up, and, and like if they want to book a ticket, you would be the person that they talk to. Right. I, my, I was mm. Agent 1006. That was, okay. I still remember it. And it was yeah. Northwest Orient Airlines, may I help you? I mean, yeah. I'm still in my, you know... So when you worked for Northwest Orient Airlines, which became eventually became Northwestern and now is no longer exists, part of it was kind of merged with Delta. Um, did you get uh, discounts on, on on travel? 
Yes, and that was the reason I wanted to work at an airline. So uh, the discount to travel round trip to London was $29. Wow, from New York to London for 29 bucks. Yes, sir. And I every weekend wow. I would leave Thursday night and come back Monday. Wow. It, that and, must have been, yeah, and that was it, that was like the glamour the height of glamour travel. Yeah. And everybody dressed to travel. Yeah. So you were going back and forth to London in the in the mid 60s and uh, just hanging out in London? So my first trip, I did a stop first in Paris. Um, I met my girlfriend in Paris that went was at FIT with me. And we met in the lobby of her hotel. And I was waiting for her. And at the same time, there was a, a rock group from London um, in the lobby. And so they thought I was French and they were talking about me. And I was really trying not to divulge that I knew what they were talking about. And so my friend Betsy came, and of course we see each other and we're screaming, and they started laughing and they said, oh, so you're an American. And it was the Spencer Davis group. I don't know if you know who they are. You know the the song, I'm a man, I'm a man, yes I am. Oh yeah, 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 oh yeah. That's it. I got you, okay. And they said, when you guys come back to London, there's a club called the Speakeasy, and we'll get you in. So we <laughs> said, sure. And when we got back to London, we, of course, went to the Speakeasy on Margaret Street. And this was this club, this private club, where all of the rock people, the everybody, um, I got to meet Jimi Hendrix and everybody. Oh, my God. Uh, yes. You were really, like, in the, got, got into the scene. Like, this is, like, swinging 60s yeah. Carnaby Street, London. Yeah. Jeff Beck, yeah. Jeff yeah. Beck was a really good friend. And then, um, and at this club, I met these two guys who were really nice. And one of them said, you're going to really get along with my girlfriend really well. Tomorrow, come meet us at our shop and so they had a shop and the stones were partners with them in the shop hmm. where, where was the shop on king's road it was on one king's of road the, in chelsea yeah, okay a friend of mine at the airline suggested i stay at a boarding house off king's road for six dollars a night so i did and yep. so this was when king's road was all gray except for a few stores that just burst color up the the walls outside. And Dandy's, which was the name of the shop, was one of those stores. Wow. What was this? And what did the store sell? They had men's clothes, women's clothes. They had a motorcycle in the store and a car engine. And and I actually have um, a photo of four of us Outside on King's Road, Parry Match came and did a color double page spread of all of us dressed in the clothes from Dandies. Wow. And it's hysterical. It looks like it's a costume party, but it wasn't it wasn't a costume party. It was what we were really wearing and the clothes wow. were great. And by by the way, this is a time, if I'm not mistaken, when London was like it was the center, like the cultural center of right. of the Western world. I mean, of yeah. course, you know, there were massive like student demonstrations were begin- beginning in Berkeley and in New York mm-hmm. City and in Paris. But like culturally, right, London was 
Carnaby Street and the Stones mm. and the Beatles. Everything. And, and, and people yeah. were wearing things that you were not seeing mm-hmm. in New York. Right. Completely different. I connected right away with it. I felt that that was where my soul was. Mm. I was totally comfortable with it. So when I talk about London being gray, you think of these tweed coats and the hats yeah. and the gray yeah. London and this color bursting literally bursting and the music blaring out of the stores it was art in expression in every way that you could think of film music fashion for sure so much had just flipped and went against the grain of anything that had happened before Mm. so when i would come back from london with my skirt uh, very short, mini. Nobody had been wearing mini skirts before that. Yeah. So when I came back and I would walk in the street with a mini skirt, cars would screech to a halt. It was shocking. And people would say the most ridiculous things like, uh, you know, either that you're a prostitute or what wow. do you, what. But. The shock of showing your knees. And that was completely, like, radical when you would come back to New York? Radical. Huh. Radical. I guess around this time, you, this is sort of the mid, mid-60s, mid you met a guy named Eddie Kamali, who would go on to be your husband. How did you meet him? His name was Mohammed Hossein Kamali. And his spoken name was Mansoor, and some of his friends would call him Eddie. And I loved to dance. Hmm. And there was a club (laughs) that opened that was a very small club. And it turned out that I knew the DJ. And he was like, oh, I'm so glad you came. And he said they're going to have dance contests here, and I think you should enter the dance contest. And I was like, I don't know. And he said, yeah, and I know a guy that's a really good dancer that you should dance with, and they they have prize money that you could win. So he introduced me to Eddie Kamali. (laughs) And, of course, we won the dance contest. So that in itself is enough reason to get married at 19. (laughs) God. Oh, God, Norma. My mom also got married at 19, um, which was not unusual at the time. And, <laughs> no. and so 19 years old, and I'm because I'm thinking, Norma, what are you thinking? But that I know. was, right? So you were 19. You're married. So when you, so you and Eddie were married when, all, when you were going back and forth to London. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and was he course, coming with you or were you going by yourself? No, he was, um, he was a student here. He was studying economics. He was one of a flood of Iranian students mm. that came during the Shah's time. Yeah. So I would go to London, and it was pretty early on that I started to bring back clothes for friends of mine who were hmm. saying, oh, you've got to get me this, this. And, and so I would bring back these little dresses from, you know, uh, Biba and Bus Stop and all of those shops in the in the garment bag, and I got those with the sort of expandable sides, and I literally it would be like I was carrying a body through <laughs> my carry on. You were just packing your suitcase and bringing stuff back, so you didn't have to pay shipping costs. I mean, I just didn't know 
better that you should. <laughs> I mean, I was just, oh, this sounds good. And I just did it. And I yeah. did that for very, I mean, four years. Meantime, uh, you're still working for the airline, right? Yes. I'm, I'm working for the airlines and bringing clothes back. Yeah. This is around like 1968, I guess. And um, mm-hmm. that year you would go on to open a a store selling clothes. But how did you connect the dots? I mean, you're obviously bringing clothes back for friends. But at what point did you say, you know what, I should actually open a shop and sell this stuff? Well, it was obvious to me that more and more people were asking me to bring clothes back. And yeah. and I thought, I don't know, maybe this is maybe this is a good idea. And having a shop would sort of solidify what I'm doing. It would, you know, make it have a purpose not to just be sort of like a cattle car coming back and forth with clothes. Um, And the the good news was because Eddie was a student, he would have time off that he could work in the store and sell. And he was great at selling, very charming. And while I was at the airlines, he was selling the clothes in the store. I mean, this is 1968, so it's not New York today, because New York real estate today is, it's almost impossible for the average person to just rent a place in New York. But how realistic, I mean, you were a a reservations clerk. How were you able to rent a a space in New York City? Was it cheap? Was it just cheap? Well, it was $285 a month. Nice. It was a basement. It was literally 9 by 16. Where where was it? On East 53rd Street. This is 53rd between between what streets? Second and third. So between second and third. Okay, so this is so this is Midtown. Yeah. But by the way, what did 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 anybody in in your office know that you had a shop selling fashion? Oh, um, that's a good question. I I kept it a secret, but the interesting thing was there were very strict rules on dress code at all airlines very strict not uniforms but you had to wear nude stockings low-heeled shoes and I took advantage of the fact that I was really good at my job and I had a feeling I would not get fired if I wore say a wig or a boa around my neck (laughs) or Wait, wait. Or, you just said it was like a conservative environment. Yes. So how were you able to wear a boa or a wig? It, it happened over a period of time, and I think they sort of got used to it, and I never got sent home. People would get sent home, but I was really good at selling tours, tours huh. to the Orient. I mean, I really made some big bucks for them, and I learned, I have to say, I learned how to sell through that job. I learned how I learned service, sales. It was a great learning experience for me. All right. So you, this store, I'm assuming, when you opened it up, there was nothing like it because it was, you're selling clothing from the UK. London, yeah. And so people looked at shopping as sort of a sport or a sort of a, a thing that you did. So couples would get dressed to go shopping. And 
word would get out. It would almost be like going to art galleries, right? Where people want to go see what's going on. And couples of all ages, all types of people would come and shop. And a lot of the fashion magazines, a lot of the stores, you know, big department stores would come to see what we were doing. But we sold things to people of all ages. I mean, I still have people who are in their 80s now who are telling me they wore my clothes, and I think it's wow. so funny. Here's somebody who's 86 who is telling me she wore my clothes, and I think, that's pretty fab. That's really good. By the way, what was the store called? Kamali. Kamali, okay. And Eddie, um, was he, like, did he, because I mean, he came to study economics, but did he prove to be actually a pretty good sales salesperson? First of all, he was incredibly handsome and incredibly charming. Mm. And he left Iran when he was 11 and was in boarding schools in London, outside of London, until he came here to go to college. So he had that British accent that yeah, kind of charming, so, he would, so yeah. Yeah, so he charmed everybody that Who came, came in. to the store. <laughs> and then he would say... Um, I, I would say to him, Eddie, I think this is way too much money to charge for this. And he would say, I'm going to sell it. You'll see. I'll sell it. And I was like, no. And he would. So then I just thought, well, I don't know what I'm talking about, so I'm just going to be quiet. So he was mainly handling the business side, and you were kind of handling the creative side? Was that, yes. that fair to say? Yeah. But you asked me before, did anybody know at Northwest if I had this company and nobody did until Time Magazine decided to do a story on snakeskin and how snakeskin was becoming the accessory or whatever and I had snakeskin wallpaper in the store and I was making at that point I started to make some things and I was making snakeskin vests and shirts and stuff like that and so they came to 53rd Street and they photographed Eddie and me in some snakeskin in front of our store and it got into Time Magazine and one day this buzzer starts going off from behind the glass wall at the front and Norma Kamali come to the front and so Wow. This is in the in the in the in like that big cavernous room at, at Northwest right. Orient, okay? So I go walking up and they take me into a room and they open the Time magazine and they slap it down and said, What is this? And I said, Oh wow. <laughs> I didn't even see it myself. Like, wow. I, I was so excited that and scared at the same time. I didn't know how to react. Um, and they said they frowned on that. And I said, I understand. And they then, frowned on the fact that you had a business yeah, or what? Okay. Yeah. But I realized then also that this was time that that I, it was it was getting very hard to do both and yeah. it just had to make a decision so I find and, and I didn't they didn't push me out but uh, in a few months after that I decided it was time to go focus on the but yeah. now but now you lose your 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 cheap flight to London to bring be able to bring the stuff back 
Right. Uh, but it sounds like at this point you're already you're already designing and, and selling some of your own pieces. Yeah. I started to make some things, and my mother helped me because, as I told you before, she was great. She made costumes and beautiful clothes, and I really didn't know how to sew. I didn't know how to make a pattern. I didn't have any of those skills, but my mother and I, through my growing up, would work together and say, Mom, can you make these pants I want them to do this this and this and she would make them until she stopped making things that she didn't think were were good for for me to wear so she didn't want to make them but we did do a lot together before this so I asked her to help me put together some of my new ideas and that's how I started it Hmm. so we started to do some things together and I would put them in the store to see how they would do and they would do really well and what were you designing I I don't know if there is a term for what the clothing was at that time to be honest they were very creative mainly one-of-a-kind pieces, handcrafted. I did uh, a lot of snakeskin clothing. I did a lot of suede and doeskin hand whip-stitch skirts with different shapes and flares. I did the very first suede skin skirt that I made. I hand whip stitched. You know, you just take a hole puncher and you punch Mm. everywhere and then you stitch it together with strips of suede. And I remember making that skirt. I put my heart and soul into it and I was so proud of it. Hmm. And of course, Eddie sold it for some whatever ridiculous amount of money, I thought. And so I had started to accumulate the majority of the stock slowly became my designs. And in a very short time after the the clothing was primarily mine, I had a full page in Vogue and I had a good size page in Bazaar. And that was beyond belief because I thought somebody is going to find me out. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I don't have a clue. And I have a full page in in Vogue and Bizarre. This is nuts. When we come back in just a moment, how Norma found the best person you could possibly imagine to narrate her first fashion show, a then unknown Bette Midler and how the ceiling eventually came down, literally and figuratively, on her clothing store. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically 
for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. We've all been there. One confusing email turns into 12 confused replies, and then a meeting to get aligned, and who has time for that? Grammarly is a trusted AI writing partner that saves your company from miscommunication and all the wasted time and money that goes with it. I personally love using Grammarly to help me strike the right tone when I'm sending important emails to my teams and business partners. I was amazed at how seamlessly it works with all the different communication tools I use every day. Grammarly works everywhere you work, integrating seamlessly across 500,000 apps and websites. No cutting, no pasting, no context switching. Personalized, on-brand writing help is built into your docs, messages, emails, everything. So join the 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster and hit their goals while keeping their data secure. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Hey, small business leaders. At How I Built This, we hear all about how founders have built their companies from the ground up. Today's sponsor, JustWorks, is all about supporting that small business growth. Whether you're looking for help with payroll, benefits, HR tools, or compliance, JustWorks has you covered. Do you ever get tired of doing it all or feel like you're too busy cutting checks, filing forms, and browsing benefits to even think about the rest of your to-do list? Running a business takes a ton of work, but you don't have to do it alone. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. JustWorks can help handle some of the administrative work you don't love. With their easy-to-use platform, you can manage onboarding, payroll, and PTO all in one place. JustWorks cloud-based platform enables managers and employees alike to quickly and securely access benefits, payroll, and other HR functionality from anywhere, anytime. So if it ever feels like your business is running you, visit justworks.com slash podcast to see how JustWorks can help you run your business. That's justworks.com slash podcast. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the late 1960s, and Norma Kamali's clothing store in Midtown Manhattan is starting to get noticed. Her husband, Eddie, is running the place, and she's designing her own versions of some of the most iconic looks of the time. The first thing that got a lot of attention and that I mean, I'm not going to take credit for being the first to do it, but I don't know anybody else that was doing it at the time. Was um, hot pants? Hot pants. This is in. This is in. Uh, I guess, like 1968. For, yeah. for for those who don't know what hot pants are, what are hot pants? <laughs> um, so hot pants. Don't forget, we're talking mini skirts, right? Yep. And how do you get a mini skirt shorter than mini? It has to be shorts. We're all wearing boots that just come below our knees. We're sort of having that proportion. 
And so they were little tiny shorts. They weren't obscene. They were very cool on long legs with boots. And everybody looked like they had long legs. And I made them, I, what I did was I treated them as pieces of art. So I would do appliques and designs on these little tiny shorts. Mm. With like rhinestones and stuff? Well, not the rhinestones I did as tops, but the 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 hot pants were mostly velvet appliques and lots of beautiful colors yeah. together. I would do palm trees and scenes, you know, all kinds of designs like that. And these were short shorts, basically. Yes. Obviously, yes. you went to the Fashion Institute of Technology. You studied illustration, like super talented artistic person anyway, really into clothing. But you hadn't been a clothing designer. This was not part of your skill set. Was that hard to figure out how to do it? Because you, 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 you didn't, I think you didn't study clothing design at, at FIT. No, but I'm obviously glad I didn't because I would have had a certain imprint that yeah. would have worked against what I really felt uh, akin to. It was very easy for me to envision what I felt should be next. When you were were kind of, you know, you're running the story, getting attention, you're getting celebrities coming in. Like, I mean, like, oh, yeah. like yeah. Bette Midler and the New York Dolls. The, the, they even had a, like an album cover with one of your, uh, right. like wearing your clothing. And were, 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 you, were you getting lots of celebrities coming into the shop? Tons. So Bette Midler started around the same time we started. And we heard about this girl who was funny and an amazing singer. And she was singing in this little dive place. And so this one night, we're at this club and we're sitting right up front by the stage, tiny stage. And this girl comes out and she is such a good singer and she's hysterically funny. And what, she, but she was not famous yet, right? No. Yeah. She had brown hair like to her shoulders. She And she was wearing vintage that was falling apart on right. her. And in the middle of her act, she stops and says, wait a minute, who are you people? And where did you get those clothes? I need to get those clothes. And so after the show, I met with her and she said, I have to get these. I should have no money. Can I work for you? I'll work in your store, whatever, but I just don't have money. Wow. So I said, I know what you can do. I'm going to do my first fashion show. And at the time, fashion shows were narrated. People talked about the clothes in the fashion show, so you had a narrator. Hmm. So I said, I want you to narrate my fashion show. Beth so Midler. Yeah, so I, this is my first fashion show. So she, so she said, what should I say? I said, I don't care. Anything you want to say when hmm. you see the clothes, you just say whatever you want to say. So we were in this mansion of somebody, a customer's boyfriend's aunt was selling it or something and so there's a mansion in new york or on long island in in new york in the 60s it was incredible and so we invited all of these people including bill cunningham and so i had clothes that looked like this let me explain what this was i had big polka dot ruffle jackets i had gold lame 
capris. I had platforms shoes. I had clothes that nobody. In fact, stretch was not available in fabric. So the stretch I was using was actually girdle and circus fabric,、hmm. and I used circus fabric to make these pieces. And so this is the tone. This is not what. Anybody was doing, so all of these fashion people come. Bet is sitting on a piano with a microphone, and she's saying whatever she wants. And the people are looking at my clothes like, like I lost my mind. This and is just totally think, nuts, totally like, crazy. Like, like the designer lost her mind,、right. and that woman on the piano lost her mind. Yeah, like nobody knew either one of us. But you had so, a bunch of like fashionistas there, and Bill、oh, Cunningham,、totally. who was like a big so, fashion photographer. No,、like, now he wasn't a big fashion okay, photographer. He wasn't. Okay, then. this is the this is you know、yeah. the sixties. I got you. So he took a ton of photos, and that's when we became friends. And he said, "Dearie, I'm telling you something. They're gonna come back and and、hmm. understand what you're doing." Wow. Yeah. This is like it's this is like a time capsule of like such、right. a moment in New York <laughs>、right. City. Bab Midler and Bill Cunningham, unknowns,、yeah. and Norma Kamali.、Right. Okay, so I'm curious about the actual shop, right? Because、mm-hmm. it's doing pretty well. It, it it must have been doing really well because by 1974, this is like six years in. You had to yeah you had to move to a bigger space. You went to、yeah. Madison Avenue, right? So when we moved in to Madison. I thought if we're on Madison Avenue, I have to do different clothes. I have to grow up. I have to learn how to make really beautiful, well-made suits and dresses. So I started to do suiting, but classical suiting.、Hmm. And I was making suits for Raquel Welch and、wow. Cher and everybody. So it really was. The right decision to make, the right place to go, and that period of time in New York fashion was very creative, and it was one of my very creative times as well. But it sounds like you were focusing more now on professional clothing or like sort of、yeah. high-end right, suits right. and dresses. I mean, you'd gone from you'd been doing hot pants and right some of these and snakeskin snake and, and、yeah. velvet. You know, bell bottoms. So things you would you would kind of wear at clubs, or you would wear、yeah. in the scene. And this sounds like you were now、right. kind of shifting to making clothing that you might wear in an office or or、yeah. to a, a, a sort of a fine dining restaurant. It was a little. It still was very unique in the design. It still was not typical of what you could find anywhere else. And prior to that, people only knew. Eddie, they didn't know me. I was very much in the background, an occasional photo or something like that. But he really was the face of the brand. And then I started to get a little recognition. People wanted to know where the clothes were coming from, and so that was happening about that time. Were you interested in the business side, or did you kind of let Eddie handle that? And kind of just focus on the creative side. Yeah, I did. You know, this is a time when women would not consider business as something they typically would do.、Hmm. It was okay, 
to be creative in that space. But the business part of it, I never considered something that I would want to have the responsibility of. And I assumed, like everyone else, that men were better at business <laughs> than women. I, you know, I, my world was that. Everybody believed it and assumed that that was the truth. And so he was in charge of hiring employees and making sure people right. came in on, and, and you were, I know we're going to get to what happened later on, but um, at at this time, you know, when you're in the store on Madison Avenue, what was your relationship with Eddie like? Was it, was it a, a pretty good marriage? Well, you know, when you're 19, you're really still a child. There's, yeah. It's just you're a child in a grown-up body. And... By 1974, you know, our identities started to form and we were clearly going in different directions, which is expected, right? I mean, how do you not? I was so happy to have found something I loved to do. And Mm. I worked so hard because I loved every minute of it. It wasn't work. He was much more social and outgoing. Hmm. So there was sort of a difference in the way we looked at life and the way we looked at everything. He was more of like a a partier? Really big time partier. And, And he was very into drugs and very into the nightlife and money is being spent on drugs and being spent on things that um, are not business related and it became more and more difficult for me to get fabric and to to just sort of do the basic things that you need. Wow. I mean, meantime, you're like your profile, I have to assume, is rising. I mean, you, you had this kind of big, big breakthrough in 1975 with with the sleeping bag right. coat that anybody, right. I mean, people who don't know it, just type it in, you'll, you'll see and you'll say, oh, of course, I know that. That's a sleeping bag coat. It's, it was like a big puffer jacket that looked like a sleeping bag and right. you wore it as a coat and, um, and became like this iconic thing. How did you come up with that idea? Well, I loved camping and I loved doing the whole the canoeing and going down the rapids. And so at uh, one cold night when I was trying to figure out how I was going to get out of my sleeping bag to find a place to go to the bathroom, I said, I'm not getting out of my sleeping bag. It's coming with me. So I wrapped it around myself. And as I was wrapped in it, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to go back and make a coat out of this. And so the first sleeping bag coat was my actual sleeping bag. And I used every bit of it. I was very conscious of saving fabric and, you know, very, very careful about those things. And that pattern is still the pattern I use today for the classic uh, sleeping bag coat. And I've made the coat every year since. Wow. And and that coat, right, that was 
I think it was like the first time because because that that material, right, sleeping bag material, which is like puffer jackets. Mm-hmm. Like I I read that people really did not wear puffer jackets no. unless they went skiing. Now it's like you know a North Face or a Patagonia puffer jackets, like you know a fashion statement. But but in in that at that time, like people only wore them to go skiing or mm-hmm. for wit. So it was sort of like um, unusual, right, for that material to be used in a, just a a coat. Well, first of all, sleeping bag fabric was different from fabric you went skiing in. Mine was sort of a khaki fabric on one side and the inside was flannel with geese and yeah. it was fabulous. And I then I bought a ton of sleeping bags and just started cutting them up like a crazy woman making sleeping bag coats. Um, was it a hit right away, the sleeping bag coat? It actually was. And, you know, that's like, 74, 75, 76, Studio 54 opens, and the doormen are wearing my sleeping bag coat. And so people decided if they bought the sleeping bag coat and stood outside, maybe that would be a way they could get inside. And I did not dissuade them. (laughs) So we sold a lot of sleeping bag coats uh, during that period of time. You know, I'm surprised that you. I'm curious about your public profile, right? Because by the by the late '70s, I mean, you were getting Bianca Jagger coming into your store, and like Ian Schrager, and you know, of Studio 54, and like all these sort of New York iconic fashion kind of in crowd people coming in. But it sounds like you didn't have as much of a public profile as Eddie come I mean, you were Norma mm-hmm. Kamali you were designing this stuff did people know who you were no my personality has always been even up till now very very private I always felt intuitively that my clothes should be the star. My clothes should make people feel good. People wearing my clothes should be the celebrities and the stars. And my personality is really not an outgoing personality. However, I attribute that decision, quite frankly, through the years to one of the reasons for my longevity. When you're the flavor of the month, people get tired of you and they want to see the next flavor of the month. Totally agree. Yeah. I think there's sort of a formula there that works because I always did what I felt was relevant and I never really allowed myself to be out there to I pulled back a lot. I didn't go to parties. I didn't, I just really stayed sort of in the background. I mean, this was really at a time where your profile, I mean, if we're, if we were in the Instagram, Twitter age, I mean, you'd be all over the place, right? Like you're, there's a, a an iconic photograph that everyone listening will, will know this photo. Anyone, anyone over, let's say 40 will know this photo. It's a Farrah Fawcett in a red swimsuit. Um, it's a, just an iconic photo that's your swimsuit. You designed that swimsuit, which I believe today is at this Smithsonian. Is in the Smithsonian's <laughs> permanent collection. Right, it is, and and you all of a sudden, I think, kind of overnight, become known as a swimsuit designer. Mm. So I asked Farah. Farah was a regular in the store and a 
just spectacular human being. And so she was in at once, and I saw her in the store, and I said, I have to ask you, why did you choose that swimsuit? Because I hated it. I hated that swimsuit so much. I did six of them, and I would do six to test to see how people reacted to see whether or not I would continue doing it. And I would do these tests, and I, I remember thinking, I don't know, I just am not sure about this suit, and don't you know, she purchased it, and I didn't realize, I didn't know that she did. And then she said, well, I had it in my bag, and I was with my friend, this photographer, and we talked about doing photos for a poster, but this was just another sort of, we're gonna take pictures. And she said, so I had it with me, so I put it on, and that's why. And I said, oh my God, I really, I couldn't believe out of all the suits she had for me that she chose that. But clearly, the suit is just the subtext to her beautiful smile, her just the, the aura she puts out and I think the reason men love it is because she's not threatening at all she's just very sweet I'm curious I mean this is a time this is like the late 70s where this is pre obviously long before internet commerce and um, and so you are in New York which is a super hugely influential place but people couldn't get your stuff outside of New York right not yet no no, at that time you had to go to right. Madison Kam- Avenue, Kamali shop mm-hmm. on Madison Avenue to buy your stuff. Right, right. And you couldn't get it in L.A. at like Fred Siegel or, or you know no. some of those. Fam- okay, no. and um, I mean this is also the, a time where you American designers are starting to really right. Right. I mean, it's the beginning of a, a complete revolution. You're going to have right. Donna Karen and you're going to have uh, Ralph Lauren and you're going to have uh, Calvin Klein and then Vera Wang and I, on and on. I'm leaving out lots of them. But right, this is kind of the, the beginning of that right. move because yes. most designers were in Europe. That's correct. And the 70s started to be, a, especially in New York, an incredibly expressive time. There was such an energy and expression. It sort of was what London was in the 60s. This was now the next sort of energy ball that was intensely exciting. By the way, did did you have a sense that you guys were making money? I mean, did it seem like, I mean, you saw people coming into the shop and, um, or were you just not even paying attention to that? I was paying attention because it takes money to buy fabric. It takes money right. to, to sort of create the next thing you're going to sell. And that's probably where the differences between Eddie and myself came about because he was spending a lot of money from the company and um, he was actually spending money from the business account of the company yeah, on his own yeah, like yeah. social life yes and he was going out every night and then he started you know word would get back to me that he was with girls and then he started dating the sales girl in the store that I had fired because she wasn't doing her job. So he Mm. hired her back. So it started, we started to have that kind of a 
not so great relationship. And we'd grown apart. And to be quite honest, I wasn't mortified that he was seeing other women. In fact, I was like, oh, well, you know, that's the way it goes. But what was happening was people were starting to realize that there was somebody else in Mm -hmm. the Kamali thing and that, that there was somebody who was designing the clothes. And at that time, it was very hard for men to reconcile a woman with power. And, and I wasn't, I was very, I mean, I hardly spoke. I was very quiet. But Hmm. my power wasn't coming from me. It was coming from people's idea of me. Hmm. And that was bothering him too. And I think part of the reason he was dating the sales girl was because he had some sort of issue with what was happening with me. And and so how did you guys resolve it? Well, clearly, um, this was not going to keep going in a good direction. It yeah. was not, it, and I think the the turning point for me, you know, there's always that one thing that happens Mm -hmm. that's so horrific that you thank your lucky stars that it happened because you make the right move. And so I remember being in the sample room one day and this same sales girl that he hired back came in to tell me that she decided she was going to be the new designer and that she wanted me to make some of her designs and she described them to me. So I was just looking at her thinking, this girl has definitely lost her mind, but I just let her keep talking. And then she leaves, and I went to my cutting table. I didn't even say anything. I went to my cutting table, and the ceiling over my cutting table just fell. And I said to myself, time to leave. And so I just left. I literally, I just left. You mean you just walked away from the business? Yes. I had $98 to my name. We, wow. uh, at that point, Eddie and I had already separated our living situation. Hmm. I, I got an apartment. I had a mattress. I didn't have furniture. I had my clothes, and that was it. And it, wow. was, it was definitely one of those moments in your life that you think oh my God, what am I going to do? When we come back in just a moment, how Norma figured out how to restart and rebuild her business and how she also learned to reinvent it with new designs, new technology, and a rollout at Walmart. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. 
Audible is the home of storytelling, and it lets you enjoy all of your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. There are thousands of titles to choose from. Members also get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. In fact, you can find How I Built This on Audible. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking, doing chores, you decide. I've been really into thrillers and true crime lately, and I've been listening to Behold the Monster, which is so freaking scary that I sometimes have to go into pranayama breathing to control my heart rate. Anyway, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com built or text built to 500-500. That's audible.com slash built or text built to 500-500. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's the mid-1970s and Norma Kamali has gotten a divorce from her husband, Eddie, and walked away from the clothing design store that they started together. And this is not one of those stories where they agreed to split up the business in equal parts. I had the $98 that I had on me. That was it. And I had been asking around to see if I wanted to leave, what would be the right thing to do, how do you handle it? And I had advice that you can't take anything if you leave, it's not you know that's huh. not how you do it if you leave so, the business yeah so i if i wanted to leave and he didn't want me to leave i mean he he literally contacted me to say you owe me a swimwear collection before you go and i was like okay wow. and knowing full well that i wouldn't have money and that i would have to come back so i think he really expected that i would wow so you, I mean, this was a business that you started. I mean, that store, Kamali, presumably had to shut down. Well, he kept it going for a while. Obviously, it didn't stay for that long. I think maybe a year or two. And I really, I was so frightened. And I'd never really told I never talked to anybody about anything private or personal and so I felt really kind of alone and a big lesson I learned was that being private and quiet is not going to get you anywhere and I had had a plan to meet this um, writer from the LA Times, which was one of a rare situation that I would ever meet an editor. And she really persisted and wanted to meet me. And my eyes were swollen shut from crying and I was so embarrassed, but I thought, I know where I'm supposed to meet her, but I don't have her number. So I went to meet her and she said, what happened to you? And for the first time in my life, I, I shared hmm. anything private. You told her that your, your marriage was dissolved yeah, that, and that your business is... And that I left the business. Yeah. And she said, well, then what do you need? And I was like, oh, my God, I need everything. And she said, well, I'm going to get you some sewing machines. And so 
I realized that if you talk to people and tell them what you need, something can happen. But if you keep it to yourself, <laughs> nothing is going to happen. She connected you to people who had sewing machines? I mean, this, this reporter for the... Yeah, she, her husband knew somebody in the industry. Mm. And then, and then I, I decided to reach out to people and ask for help and ask if I could borrow money. And, and that was my first, like, okay, I, I better figure out how to do this. So, I mean, you, what you did have, though, was your reputation and obviously your, your, your track record of designing already kind of iconic designs, but no money. Um, this is a time where I, I imagine, especially for a woman entrepreneur to go and like raise money i mean was that was that even a, a possibility could you have gone out and like i don't know pitched people and and gotten investors no. on board no <laughs> but don't forget women women didn't have businesses that i didn't know a woman who had her own business never mind in the fashion industry i knew women who were partners who had shops and things like that. But to have your own company and run it and design for it, that was sort of like, I couldn't think about it. I just had to do it. And so friends invested their money in me and, you know, family, friends, anybody, anything that I could muster, I did. And Mm -hmm. I was so committed to paying everybody as soon as I could because what they did for me is they gave me a freedom that I so desperately wanted. All right. So it's 1978 and you're completely starting again. And Mm -hmm. you call your new business OMO on my own. I love that. Um, And did did, did you kind of... Re- recreate this idea? Was it a, a brick-and-mortar store with a space to design clothes in the back as well? Yeah, I had to come up with something. So I came up with OMO Norma Kamali. Hmm. And I I did find a space on 56th Street, and there was uh, a space that I used as a sample room. And so... That was really the turning point in my career. Hmm. All right. So you've got OMO. Um, mm-hmm. You're starting from scratch and right. kind of. And um, this is a time I think you started to experiment with like material that was used in like sweatpants, like sweat clothing. Yes. So for my entire career, I would put in styles in the store and... Then the people from Bloomingdale's would come in and I would see full page ads with my styles, but not with my name on it, but with Bloomingdale's. And you basically were knocking they were knocking your style off. Right. And and I was crying trying to pay the rent. Let's just yeah. let's plain and simple. You I would was you would design of, stuff, sell it in your boutique, and then you would see the Bloomingdale's right. or or other places. Yeah. And so finally I was doing a swimwear collection and as I was doing the collection I thought, I think I'm gonna get sweatshirt fabric because I love to swim and when I would swim my brother had these sweatshirts from the Army Navy store and I would put them on when I got out of the water 
and I bought gray sweatshirt fabric and I designed some cover-up pieces for swimwear and then I thought this is really beautiful I did a dress and then I did a jumpsuit and then I did a coat and then I did a suit and I had 36 pieces hmm. all in gray sweatshirt and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking you know what somebody's gonna make a lot of money on this and this time it better be me because hmm. I can't have any more sleepless nights. We got to pay the rent. Yeah. And so I didn't know what to do. So I contacted Women's Wear Daily, who were very supportive of me, especially going out on my own. And they came to see it. And I said, how do I protect this? And they said, do not show it to anybody. We are going to introduce you to someone who will be a great partner for you to do a license with. So they introduced me to Sidney Kimmel, who had Jones Apparel at the time, which was a hugely successful line for women going into the workplace. And we signed a deal in two weeks. We were in business. Then the brand, the name became known globally. It really just took off uh, in a huge way. I, I'm, I'm looking at a photo of the of a, a Norma Kamali sweat jumpsuit from 1982, and I see my mom in that. It's not my mom, <laughs> but I see my mom in that picture. Right. Um, <laughs> that did really well. I mean, you. I think by 1981, yeah. you, you were doing 11 million dollars in sales. Yeah, uh, easily, yeah. yes. And it became global. I had licenses in Japan, in Europe, in the U.S. I had 30 licenses for co everything, covering accessories, the whole deal. And that's when I really learned how to negotiate, how to manage a bigger kind of company. But there comes a point when you get too much attention that you you get scared and you think this is going to be the end of me because it's going to be too much. And so after six years of doing the collection with uh, Jones Apparel, I didn't renew the contract. Hmm. Now, let me tell you, there was a lot of money on the table. I'm there, sure. But I... I said, I don't, I don't need a lot of money. Hmm. I, I just need my independence. And how can I maintain that? What can I do to maintain that, but still keep my brand in a good place? Wow. Now, walking away, as we all know, is a very important thing to do at the very right time and it is the hardest thing to do yeah but those were the times that really saved me um from from really bad situations but you thought that i mean i guess i'm not i'm not entirely clear about why you would i mean if it was successful and it was doing well and there was money to be made um what was well, it yeah as it got bigger and bigger the quality control mm diminished. And that's not good for me, right? That's not good for my reputation. And then the distribution wasn't controlled. Yeah. I, I remember Sachs was complaining 
because I did these big yellow slickers, right? They were really big with buffalo check, flannel buffalo check inside. And these are rain, like raincoats. Rain slickers, big yeah. fun ones. And they, they did a big ad promotion, everything, and they still hadn't gotten their shipment. And I was on my way home, and I passed a store on 14th Street, like a schlocky junk store with a rolling rack outside of the yellow slickers, of my yellow slickers. And I said, what is happening with the distribution? Why are there no controls? And I remember I was told, you're only a pimple on an elephant's ass. And that's how big their company was. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, I think this is the time to, to hang it up. And of course, another thing that, that's really hard to keep control over is is the designs themselves, right? I mean, because because I mean, let's just be clear: like it's it's very hard to patent designs. No, you can't. Right? You can't. Yeah. You can't. So, the, which, which is which is which is why like fast fashion began in the '90s and right, right, sort of cheap knockoffs that you would find at you know some of these stores because you can't, right? People, no. people can really not just kind of copy your style. It's sort of, it, to be honest, it's sort of a way of life in the fashion industry. Yeah. There's a whole, most of the industry copies. And, you know, for me, I've always thought, I'm not going to get upset about it. I have another idea, so I don't have to worry that they took that idea. But when it comes to your survival in the business, that's when you start to get anxious about it. Now, you know, people still copy me. In fact, there's this young designer who in 2016, she opened, uh, did a website. And she based her website on a dress I designed in 1973 that I still sell called the All-in-One. And the dress can be worn in a hundred different ways. It's easy care. And I have a whole video showing the way you wear it. And her whole website is this dress, the video she did of all the ways you can wear it, and that she is the creator of the dress. And she even came to my store to see what was going on, the whole thing. So I hear about this. And she is a very small business. And my CFO says, we have to, you know, we have to put a stop to this. She Mm. can't make these claims. So he talks to the lawyer, the whole thing. And this is recent. So last week I said, this is what I want to do. I don't want to have negative conversations about somebody knocking me off. The only thing I care about is that she makes the dress in a good way. The way she's making it is so ugly and poorly made that what I want to do is drop all of the charges against her and I'm going to send her a pattern of the dress with instructions on how to make it. And I said, and you know what? Now she's not taking advantage of me. I gave her a gift and that's it. And so that's my attitude at this point about knocking off. I mean, it's just so pervasive though. Yeah. Um, Norma, while you were, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like in the 80s, you were really focusing on comfort clothing. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, now we all talk about it because everybody's been doing Zoom calls. And here I am. I'm wearing, right. pajama, I'm wearing pajama pants right, right now and, and, and um, house slippers. But, right. um, but, you know, normally together I'd be wearing, you know, 
a collared shirt and, you know, I'd, I'd be meeting Norma Kamali. I would dress really well. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems like you were doing, like, comfort clothing, you know, washable, machine washable. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your, like, if I were to go to a shop and said, I want to look, I want to dress in Norma Kamali stuff in, like, 1985, what would I look like? Well, my philosophy has been the same all these years. So I was believing in clothes that felt good on, knits, clothes that you could wash and not dry clean, fun clothes, clothes that you could be active in. I've always, I'm still that same person. I'm wearing sweats as we speak. Um, I love to feel good in clothes. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't even want to think about my clothes. But the most important thing is that it's not precious. You can wear it anytime. You don't have to hang it on a special hanger or it's going to get wrinkled. That to me is so not on the list of what what I'm going to do. Yeah, I'm curious because today like, for example, streetwear, which is such a weird term to me because streetwear means like $600 T-shirts, right? Mm-hmm. Or like right. or like $300 rubber flip-flops. Right. That's streetwear. Right. I'm like, who on the street right. is wearing a $500 T-shirt? Right. Um, was was your stuff super hot, expensive or was it, was it affordable? No. Affordable. So to me, value is also really important that you're able to pay the rent and still have something you love. And, uh, you know, the idea of somebody buying like a $5,000 handbag and not having any money to do anything else is like insanity. So for me, beautiful clothes don't have to be expensive. Hmm. And, and I mean, clearly that, it sounds like that became kind of a, a, a or was a mantra of yours. I mean, because you... I mean, I'm moving forward a little bit, but you you would go on to to partner with Walmart in in the early 2000s. Yes. To um, to debut a, co- a collection of clothing at Walmart, which, by the way, um, you can still get through like eBay, and people sell them at a premium, <laughs> right. Right. like like Norma Kamali T-shirts and stuff. But um, right. tell me about that about that partnership, because I mean, Norma Kamali, high fashion. You know, there's a certain kind of reputation and brand, and Walmart obviously mm. is not that. Yeah. I'll tell you. So first of all, when Halston made a decision to do a big box, I think it was pennies, it killed Mm. his career. And so, you know, word has always been, you don't want to get involved with those because for your reputation, it's not good. But I love to meet people and listen to ideas and what they are offering. So if people approach me about something... I probably, nine times out of ten, will have the conversation. I always learn something from it. And and it sounds like that's what happened in this case, right? I mean, I think I think at some point, what, like, someone you knew from the industry who'd, who'd gotten a job at Walmart, like, called you up and, and made some sort of offer? Yes. And he said, I'm going to ask you something, and I don't want you to say no right away. <laughs> he said... I'm working at Walmart, and I want you to come and meet me here. And I said, oh, I don't, I really don't think so. Hmm. And he said, I know you 
would like this meeting. I know you're going to like it just for the experience you have to come. So I said, okay, I, I trust your judgment on that. So I get on a plane and then you take that little plane to Walmart, to Bentonville. And I go to my first Walmart superstore and I am blown away. I have never I mean, I'm a New York City girl. Yeah. I don't There's I don't no even Walmart superstore in New York. Yeah. No, and I don't drive a car, so I'm not, you know, I'm like a New York girl. So I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, "Holy mackerel." So then I I meet some really smart people. We have these great conversations and they want to have a a fashion line for Walmart and I said I don't think so. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I'm just saying. And a little over a year later, I got a call from them. It appears that they did do a fashion line for Walmart and it didn't work. And somebody that was at that meeting said, "We have to talk to Norma, but this time we'll come to see you." So they said, "What is in your mind? What are you thinking about?" And I told them that I thought that they should have the core of a wardrobe, like a trench coat, a white shirt, a black trouser, a jacket, all the basics. Mm. And so I remember when I was doing a t-shirt t-shirt designs for them and I see 650 units and I said I don't know that doesn't seem like it's going to be enough and they said well that's 650,000 units and I was like oh okay <laughs> all right I get it and so the quality of the clothes was exactly the quality i wanted the fabric was the fabric i wanted and why is why so because when you order 650,000 units you can get the quality you want and the fabric you want that's mm. a tremendous amount of power my yeah. experience at walmart was extraordinary i i read that when the collection was debuted at walmart and you you were at, at a walmart like people were running up to you with with like cash register receipts for you to autograph right, them. Right. Right. It it seems to me that that part of of what you have tried to do and have done throughout your career has been to constantly like you're constantly coming up with different ideas like you got into e-commerce super early like in mm -hmm. in in like 1996. Yeah. And you got on you were on eBay like really early and you you mean in the 90s you introduced like a I think a a line of like home goods products mm -hmm. like were all those things was it was it just you following your curiosity or were were these like like really kind of strategic business decisions that you were making I actually had a website in like between 95 and 98 where I started to really kind of want to be because I was so comfortable with computers and because of the airlines and I understood what you could do with this kind of technology i just wanted to jump right in right away and of course it was way early but i i do well when i'm doing a lot of different things because i find each of them inspires the other and keeps things very exciting remember i haven't changed my job 
in 53 years. I've had the same job. And so when I'm interested and I see something is an opportunity that can use creativity and technology, I am super excited about it. I, you know, I love VR. I love some of the amazing directions we can go in. This is a very exciting time, inventive time. This is going to be bigger than the 60s were in the revolution part of it. When, I mean, there's there's so much, <laughs> there's so much in your life and career that we can, that we just can't talk about because it's been, you've had this incredible career. And I know um, you've got a book um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of talking a little bit about your life and, and also about your experience. And I, 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 I gather the message of your book is like, hey, actually, your life gets better as you get older. Yeah. The book is called I Am Invincible. And what I do is I share my life experiences through the decades. And so the goal of the book is to help women get through each of these decades with some tools and information. And aging with power is sort of the the headline of the book in that you can get better with age. And that at 75... I love the fact that I'm so much smarter now than I ever was and Hmm. that I do things now to serve my purpose in this lifetime, which is a very freeing experience. And you recently got engaged at 75. (laughs) I did. I did. Yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. So we all have a different schedule. We all have a different timeline and one should never judge theirs by others. I am very fortunate that I did end up finding someone who is my soulmate. I'm happy that it was at this point in my life because honestly, I wasn't ready earlier. And I think the universe just is checking things out for us and helping make the right decisions like meeting your soulmate at 65. It's funny because I, I talked to my mom about this who's, who's almost your age and uh, she she always says to me I, this is the best time of my life. Like mm-hmm. I love being in my 70s. This is, right. it's, do, do you do you feel that way? Yeah, she she's absolutely right. You know, anti-wrinkle, anti-aging, all of that just drives me and your mother crazy mm. okay i yeah. will speak yeah. for her yeah. <laughs> so yeah. right. so i feel that i'm in the place where i can communicate and help educate what aging is about and whether it's a 20 year old that feels like she's getting old or uh, a 30 year old 40 year old 50 year old the idea of getting old should be part of the passage in a woman's life, not something to fear, but something to cherish because of the knowledge and the experience you gain in each of these decades. Yeah. Norma, COVID has been really, really difficult on your industry. I mean, the, the, the in, in 2020 alone, 
J. Crew, Neiman Marcus, um, J.C. Penney, Brooks Brothers filed for bankruptcy. I mean, Gap couldn't pay rent on like more than two thousand stores. Um, but I wonder, this year is is going to. I'm assuming it's going to inevitably change the industry and how it how it operates. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Is there is there a silver lining to it? Oh, totally. I mean, the the industry has been fragile for a long time. And many changes needed to be made, and this only forced them to happen sooner rather than later. And talk about stressful. If you did not have a significant part of your business on e-commerce, you were going to get beaten up pretty badly. Fortunately, since Walmart, I did so well on e-commerce there, I thought, okay, my next collection, I'm focusing on e-commerce from now Mm. on. Mm. And so I have been, and my company, the big, big, big percentage is e-commerce. And we've really redefined ourselves as a company. Yeah. When you think about the the history of American fashion, you know, I think a lot of people would say you're, you're, a big part of it. You're right, right, right there in it. It's like the history of, of restaurants. And, you know, Alice Waters, who who's on the show, mm. like she's just incredibly so important great. Yeah. part of why why so many people eat local and organic food. Right. Do you do you feel like that? Does that um, or do you feel like a, a pioneer in that in, in in American fashion? You know, it's really interesting. I look at Norma Kamali almost <laughs> as this other person, right? I think that Norma Kamali contributes to the fashion industry. I like to think people are comfortable in a casual lifestyle in their clothing because of maybe something I did with sweats. I'm like that little speck that gets things activated and then it becomes something bigger and much bigger than I am. I certainly don't want to have, like, my name on it to feel better. I just sort of feel, hmm, that's that's pretty cool. I like that. Mm. I like that that's happening. I like that people are wearing sweats now at home. And everybody's saying they're going to never wear sweats again. Sorry, I don't believe you. I, I know you're going to wear sweats again. I mean, when you think about it, you had no intention of becoming a fashion designer. You went to the Fashion Institute of, of Technology because your mom was like, "You better get a job." And right. then, um, but and that really was your your objective. Like the idea that you would become this known fashion designer was not part of your plan, but you did. And you know, a successful, well known designer. How much of your story do you and your success do you think happened because? because you worked really hard and were really strategic, and how much do you think has to do with just getting lucky? First of all, yes, you have to work really hard. And the way you work really hard is that you're doing what you love. You love it so much that you don't feel like you're working hard and that you have good relationships because the last thing you want to do is burn bridges and relationships, you know, at 75 and 53 years in the business, the one thing I can tell you is do not burn a bridge because that bridge is going to come around again. You're going to see all those people again. You cannot believe 
how everything comes around. But I also think, I hope I don't sound too crazy or woo-woo, but I do think the universe has a big plan for us. And you can call it luck, but I think it's even more than that. I think we do things because that's what we should be doing. That's iconic fashion designer Norma Kamali. And by the way, remember when she was talking about that one-off design she did back in the late 1960s? That suede skirt that she whip-stitched using a hole puncher? Well, a few years back, decades after she created that skirt, Norma was out walking around town. And I see a girl walking towards me in the most amazing skirt. And I kept looking at it thinking, oh my God, it moves so beautifully. I really love that skirt. And as she was coming towards me, that was my skirt. And she must have been 19. So clearly that skirt was purchased by someone, either handed down to her mother to her or sold, then given to a vintage store that then sold it to someone. That skirt probably has had several lives. And here I was seeing it and I wanted to stop her, but I thought, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're just supposed to look at it. Hmm. And I had chills. I was so moved by it. I'll never forget that moment. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you are not a subscriber, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to write us, our email address is hibt at npr.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at How I Built This, or my personal one is at Guy Raz. And my Instagram is at guy.raz. Our show was produced this week by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Liz Metzger, Farah Safari, Dareth Gales, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Janet Ujung Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most (laughs) people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less. In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Hey everyone, it's Guy Raz here, and I have a new show that I think you're going to love. From Wondery and hosted by Laura Beale, the critically acclaimed podcast Dr. Death is back with a new season called Dr. Death Bad Magic. It's a story of miraculous cures, magic, and murder. When a charismatic doctor announces revolutionary treatments for cancer and HIV, it seems like the world has been given a miracle cure. Medical experts rush to praise Dr. Sirhat Gumruku as a genius. But when a team of private researchers looks into Sirhat's background, they begin to suspect the brilliant doctor is hiding a shocking secret. And when a man is found dead in the snow with his wrists shackled and bullet casings speckling the snowbank, Sirhat would no longer be known for world-changing treatments. He'd be known as a fraud and a key suspect in a grisly murder. Follow Dr. Death Bad Magic on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Dr. Death Bad Magic ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.